So if the narcissist is accusing us of cheating, we go above and beyond to call them 15 times a day. We make sure that we're home before they're home. We make sure that we dote all over them because we're trying to convince them we are not this faulty perception. Welcome to Expose Radio, the incredible platform that provides a safe space for individuals who have been through abusive environments and relationships. If you have ever felt alone, unheard or unsure of where to turn for support, Expose Radio is here for you. Our mission is to empower survivors of abuse by providing a platform where you can share your story, connect with others who have had similar experiences and find the resources and support you need to move forward. I am your host, Anastasia Gajkowska, a girl from Poland who decided to use my story to empower individuals who have been through a lot, some unhealthy relationships. Hold my hand and let this platform serve as a safe space so you can find those connections between you and others. we are going to continue talking about red flags with Lisa Romano who is a specialist in healing from narcissistic relationships. No, thank you for inviting me. It's an honor and a pleasure, really is. And thank you for doing this, for bringing this to the world. It's time. Please let me welcome my good friend Daniel Hawkins who is a lay-based actor writer and designer and very good human being we met with daniel during one of the networking events in la and we stayed friends and when i asked daniel if he would like to share his story he said right away yes so thank you for coming for the podcast and daniel You are such an influencer on social media and I was amazed when you shared with me that you never shared your story publicly to anyone else. So I think it's such a, such a pleasure for me and honor to be the first one who got to hear it. And for our audience, could you please share a little bit about what was the first red flag when you met your ex-partner? And that moment, that moment when you decided, I'm leaving. The first red flag um, that I remember is, um, this was a few weeks after, you know, he had moved in. Um, I would, you know, um, if I were at lunch or something. Now, luckily, one thing about me, I, I've never liked to live far from work. So I actually only lived about five minutes from my job. 
Um, and even though I could have walked, I drove, <laughs> you know. Um, but, you know, like some days I would call during my lunch or if I was on break, you know, just to be like, hey, you know, what's going on? I wouldn't get an answer. Um, and, you know, sometimes I may get off a little earlier than expected. And, you know, I would come home and um, he wouldn't be there. And um, he wouldn't answer his phone. And, you know, around the time that I would normally um, be off from work or he would know that I would be, you know, soon to arrive, you know, he would show up and he'd be like, oh, you're off. And I'm like, yeah, I tried to call you, you know, what's going on? Oh, well, you know, I was on the phone with my sister or, you know, I was talking to my mom or, you know, you know, I had walked up to the gas station and my phone died. I'm like, but you're sitting here with a charger all day, like, so those were the first red flags that I began to notice. Uh, you know, it just seemed to be, uh, I couldn't prove it because my primary focus was work, um, but it just seemed to be a bit of dishonesty. Do you remember, like, do you remember how your body reacted during that time? Like, if you could feel something, some signals from there? You know, I definitely, looked at him with a side eye, you know, kind of like, I don't, you know, I'm thinking these are my internal thoughts. I'm thinking inside my head. I don't believe you. I, I really feel like you're full of it, but I don't really have the time or the energy to investigate this. So I'm just going to believe what you're saying as far as, you know, your phone died and that you love me and there's nothing to worry about. Um, and I'm just going to continue on with my day. But when those moments became more prevalent or, you know, when they became more, um, more than less, then that's what really began to, you know, create a lot of suspicion. Uh, now, uh, <clears throat> after about three months of him living with me, uh, my lease ended um, with my, you know, uh, previous roommate and so, uh, my uh, boyfriend at the time, we decided, uh, well, I was already got to move anyway, but um, we decided to get a place for our home, you know, at this time. And so um, we moved basically uh, maybe about 15 minutes away from there, uh, a little bit further from my job. Um, but it was nice. Uh, we were living on our own at that point. But then at that point, it was like after a few weeks of living on our own, you know, with just the two of us, his personality and everything about him just began to start changing. Now, keep in mind, you know, I've, I've, you know, I've always been, you know, a creative, even though I worked in corporate America, you know, I'm, you know, an interior designer. So, you know, my home has always been very beautiful, you know, very custom, you know, uh, as far as every aspect of it, you know, when you walk into it, it's like you're literally walking into Wonderland in that sense. Um, so basically, um, just his demeanor, everything about him just began to change. His, you know, he began to be or come off as very um, arrogant and um, rude. You know, a lot of times, you know, I've, uh, he finally got a job, you know, helped get a job and everything. And so you know, he began to get back on his feet and make money. And so he began, began to become very, like I said, arrogant at that point. Um, once he started making his own money and his own means of income. Um, 
And then it got to the point to where it was like, you know, I'll get off from work and I don't see you till the next day type of scenario. Or I don't see you for several hours. And, you know, I'll call you, hey, what, what's going on? Where are you? And you cuss me out. You know, you get mad, you know, like, or, you know, you come home and you just, uh, you know, you just intentionally start an argument with me. So that way you have a reason to storm out of the house and leave and not come home for a few days you know, type of scenario. Um, so that was the aha moment. And so um, what happened, um, I was actually downtown by myself one day um, and it was nighttime. I was leaving an event and I was walking by myself and I actually, I actually got robbed at um, gunpoint. And um, they, I guess what they call it, pistol whipped me and also drugged me. And um, this was back in 2017. And um, I don't know exactly what happened. I guess I freaked out, you know, from the drug that was you know, put into me. And I woke up in a uh, mental state. Like two days later, apparently they had me sedated for a couple of days. This is actually the first time I've ever talked about this uh, outside of my mom and, you know, my previous therapist. I, want to, I mean, if you feel safe, to give a hug and say, hey, I'm, I'm safe. Um, and tell yourself if you, to release that, feel that feeling and say, hey, I'm safe. I, I love myself or I release that. I'm when okay. I went through so much trauma and uh, I, I forgive that, that, that myself that I was uh, in that situation or well it's very important to actually acknowledge that because of um, my hope is that it can create a release in you when you're speaking right because oh, I, I don't want to trigger you at all yeah. like not at all you know honestly and the reason and i'm so grateful that you did this because for several years now i've been wanting to speak on this because i know that my story will help several people mm -hmm. uh, you know especially a lot of people that know me that would never have imagined that i would go through something that i've been through something like this especially looking at my life now but we can back, get back into it so i woke up in the mental asylum and first person I called and the number that I couldn't remember at the time because my mind was still pretty hazy from the, you know, from the, I guess, the drugs, sedatives, or whatever they sedated me with. Whenever I called my mom, you know, she had, you know, called every hospital, every police station that she could, you know, just trying to figure out what had happened to me whenever my car was stolen, you know, at that time. Um, and so basically, you know, she was relieved to know that I was alive, but she frantic knowing where I was. Now, unfortunately, I wasn't able to immediately check myself out. You know, I had to spend a week in there and I had to speak with some head doctor or something um, and have a conversation with them to show my sanity in order to get out of there. So, seven days, five, two of those days I was sedated, five of those days I was awake. And it just seemed like 
worst time of my life. But anyway, after I spoke with my mom, I called my fiance. First answer to the phone and he heard it was me. He hung up. I called back. And I could hear a female's voice in the background, which sounded familiar, but I, I wasn't really sure about it. But he refused to talk to me. So the next day I called my mom and I told my mom, hey, you know, my mom lived about an hour and a half from at that time. I said, mom, I need you to go to my house and I need you to see what's going on. You know, her and my little sister, you know, drove from um, Tyler, Texas to, to uh, Dallas, Texas or Addison, Texas at that time. And the you know, and my mom, you know, she had a, uh, I call, I was able to contact the front office and, you know, have them tell them, you know, uh, my mom's name and, you know, uh, that she would be bringing identification, blah, 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 to give her a key. Um, when they got there, my mom said, apparently the door was bolted from the inside. So they weren't able to get into the house. Um, She could hear a female's voice inside, so she knew someone was there. She didn't see my fiance's car at the time. So they originally planned on staying at my house overnight, but because they couldn't get in, you know, they ended up having to drive an hour and a half back home. So speeding up a few days or whatever, you know, I would try to call them, no answer. You know, um, the day I finally got out. My mom met me there. She drove back up and took me home. When I got to my house, I realized that my fiance had, I guess, called or summoned his sister from Florida and moved her into her house. I didn't understand what was going on. None of this had been run by me. She hated my guns, so it was a very uncomfortable environment. Imagine, um, oh, so also in that process, um, luckily, I had a lot of uh, sick and vacation days, you know, that I had accumulated from work, so I was able to communicate well enough without telling exactly job to where I was able to keep my job and take some time off. So I ended up going on FMLA. <clears throat> now keep in mind because you know I had been you know pretty much assaulted and uh, assaulted and robbed. You know I was in pain throughout the process so you know I was prescribed um, you know some pain medication. Would I have ever thought that I would become addicted to pain medication? But did I? Yes. While I was out on FMLA taking therapy, um, I slipped into what they um, diagnosed me with as major depression. I was off from work for maybe about four months, and within that four months,
once I attempted to commit suicide twice. I remember one of those particular times, um, you know, I was, I had taken some of the pain medication a little too much and I remember going to uh, my ex-fiance and just telling him, I was like, hey, I, I really, I, I just, I need help. You know, I need you to help me and I, 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 I don't want to live like this anymore. Instead of helping me, he decided to leave and take a short vacation. So, that next day, I remember sitting at my dining room table. His sister had left the house too at this point. I was sitting at my dining room table and I had both of my pain bed uh, pill bottles in front of me. There was just this voice in the back of my head just saying, you're never going to be enough. I just kept hearing that voice over and over. I tried calling my mom. She's at work, you know, so she, I, I, I didn't get a chance to talk to her. I called my fiance three times, and he answered the phone. And he was actually with another guy. <laughs> and he refused to talk to me. So that night, I downed as many pills as I could. And I remember trying to write a note to my family and apologize to them. And let them know that I love them. And that I hope that regardless of the fact that I decided to take my own life, they can still love me and understand why I did. I don't remember exactly how this happened, but somehow after I took the medication and I became unconscious, I regained consciousness. And there was a 7-Eleven right around the corner from my house. Somehow I drove to that 7-Eleven. My phone had died on my cell phone and I drove to that 7-Eleven and I remember walking through those stuff doors and, and it was everything was just such a blur but this is all I remember up until the point and I remember asking God I said I need your phone I said I need your phone and he, I guess you could tell that I was you know out of the bed whatever he was like no no sir you know he was like I'm ready he was like no sir no sir Played back. Um, the video footage was played back um, later, which is why I can recollect as much as I know now. But somehow I grabbed the phone and I staggered out of the double doors back outside of the gas station and I called my mom and she answered. She just so happened to be on break and she asked me what was going on and I told her, you know, I just said, I love you, but I have to leave. And my mom already knew that I was dealing with suicidal thoughts, so she already was kind of frantic at that point. She knew something was wrong. Um, 
she asked me where I was, and I told her I was at the gas station by the house. And at that point, I collapsed. So when I collapsed, the guy at the front counter, apparently he came, grabbed the phone, and he got on the phone with my mom and talked to her, and they called an ambulance. They got there, and they, you know, pumped my stomach and did everything they could to, you know, basically revive me in that sense. From what I was told, I had even, you know, died on my way to the hospital. Uh, but uh, went to the hospital, and the next day, where did I end up again? I woke up back in the incentive. Actually, I woke up and they were basically getting ready to transport me to the mental institution. Because I guess apparently from that first time, you know, when I was drugged and they, they had pulled my medical records and they, I guess they just deemed me as being mentally unstable, you know, um, at that point. So, um, because I didn't have any family or any type of emergency contacts or anything at that point, you know, I guess the state, they just decided well, this is what we're going to relocate to. So I remember them putting me in a wheelchair, putting, having all my belongings and coming down the elevator to of the hospital and then them wheeling me out of the side door um, about to put me on this white van. <laughs> I remember the far distance I heard a loud yell saying, Damien, Damien, baby, no, you don't take my baby. And so I realized as they got closer, it was my mom and it was my sister. <sighs> but the guys from the mental institution, they wouldn't let me, they wouldn't let them get close to me. They wouldn't let me hug them. They wouldn't, they wouldn't let me touch them. They wouldn't let them touch me or anything. I just said, please come in with us and you guys can deal with it when it's done. So I don't know where this huge burst of energy came from because I was so exhausted. But somehow, I literally just got a huge burst of energy and I took out running toward my mom. And I got to her and I was able to hug her. <laughs> and I told her, I said, Mom, I'm going to be okay. I love you and I'm, and I'm not going to try to kill myself anymore. <laughs> and the guys, they were furious. At first, they were trying to pull me away. But then there was just like a divine force, just something, just said, leave him alone and just let him hug his mom for a moment. So they let me hug my mom and my sister for about three minutes. <laughs> and then they made me get on the band, and that's when they took me back to the mental asylum, and I was there almost two weeks. <laughs> I got out of it. When I got back home, 
my mom and my family, my mom, my uncle, my cousin, and my little sister, they actually all met me at my house. They drove an hour and a half. And I didn't know they were doing this, but they uh, rented a big 18-wheeler U-Haul truck. And they met me at my house and they said, you're not going back to this guy. You're not going to continue this relationship. My mom said, I hope that you don't hate me. But she said, before I lose my son, get you out. <laughs> so, I ended up losing my job, you know, while I'm at the uh, which that could have been a whole big, huge loss. But I was just so exhausted of everything. I didn't even want to pursue it, you know. I just wanted to be done with it. But anyway, I lost my job. Um, my family loaded everything up uh, in my apartment. The only thing they left behind were the two nightstands that he purchased his clothes and shoes and the mattress and box spring so he wouldn't sleep on the floor. And they drove me back to my hometown, put everything in storage. And that's when I began to, once I got back to my hometown, that's when it was rehab time as far as my mind, my body, my soul, my spirit. I had to go reset. And so I was home for about eight months and finally got everything back under control, you know, got my mental right, had a little bit of therapy and everything. Once I got back to a good stable point, um, I landed the job working for Google, but it was in the state of Atlanta, Georgia, city of Atlanta, state of Georgia. And so, uh, you know, I reassured my family I was fine and that things were okay. Eight months after all of that took place, that's when I moved to Atlanta, Georgia, to pursue um, a job working with uh, And um, speed up a few years later, here we are now. Um, you know, nobody, I'd say there's probably two people in this world that look like yourself, and probably people that worked at the mental asylum hospitals that have ever known. actuality most people probably couldn't walk a day in those shoes but it just goes to show that you know the highest the universe you know gives the biggest struggles and the biggest heartaches to what we learn later are the strongest individuals we just think we're weak at that time 
here I am. And I'm truly living my best life. You know, it took me a while to understand why I went through what I went through and why me. It was always why me, but then now I realize why not me? Why not me? Somebody had to do it. Somebody had to go through it in order to help other people get through it. You know, it's already hard enough being a black man, you know, but being a black gay man in America. I can't tell you how many times I would pray and just ask God to let me go to sleep and wake up to somebody else. But the reality is, this is the life I was given, and the life that I'm choosing to now embrace. And uh, I just hope that before my time on this planet comes to an end, that my life's purpose is fulfilled and that I truly do inspire other people to keep going and to keep pushing and to let people see that they can become anything that they want to become. The things, the life that I live now, I dreamed about this years ago. I have so many deja vu moments, you know, the home that I live in now. About five years ago, I remember dreaming about sitting in the same exact same spot that I'm sitting in and I didn't recognize it then, but to recognize it and be in this moment now, it's amazing. But I will say, the only reason that I was able to push through and make it through any of that is because I chose to give my life to a higher power. I realize that it's not about me, but it's about the calling that we all have that most people miss in their life. Me meeting you, right before the pandemic that wasn't my mistake <laughs> you know it's it's crazy you know you can literally meet a person you know and think that you know you're gonna be uh, amongst them for the rest of your life one week and the next week you never hear from them again you know you never you know years could go by but you know the fact that you know we've been able to stay in touch you know following each other on social media you know just staying in contact you know um, appreciating each other's gifts and things like that you know truly means me, you know, so I'm very grateful that you, uh, that the universe has, you know, put this project in your hands and giving people like myself the opportunity to speak on their heads and to not only give us the opportunity to inspire and to educate other people, but to release a lot of what we that's actually my last question thank you so much for sharing that story wow i am totally mind blown i cannot imagine how did it feel when you woke up in that asylum and there was no no one around you how you felt betrayed and not belonging and heartbroken but you still found a way to restore and find yourself again I feel that's what really inspired me and I hope also that's what 
your our audience will remember. Because many times when we leave those relationships, we get stuck in one chapter about why this happened to me and we start to blame that person instead of moving forward and healing and finding our authentic voice. And that's what I found in my own journey, that I would leave those relationships, but I would still live as if I was in that relationship, which means I would not allow myself to fully enjoy life or do things I really liked or uh, do things which make me smile. And, um, and the creativity you mentioned, which is such a powerful tool in your career as an actor, writer, designer, that creativity is something what you never lost. And actually it even became stronger for you as an artist. Because now you get to not only create, but also share your soul, that pain and suffering with your audience, with people you interact with. Every single person that I meet or that I've met on this planet, you know, if they say nothing else, they speak about my energy and about me being a light in the world full of darkness. So nothing else, I know that my superpower is being a, a beam of light and also being able to inspire the masses. Lisa, could you comment a little bit on why we keep attracting those abusive relationships and why it's so hard to leave those relationships? When there's childhood trauma, I think there are a couple of things that we have to talk about. When there's childhood trauma and we are being conditioned to agree, we're being conditioned to fawn after, we're being conditioned to tone ourselves down, we're being conditioned to think that our feelings don't matter, we're being conditioned to look out of our, outside of ourselves for direction, right? We, we've lost ownership over our lives. We are not the captain of our own ship. We are living life, looking outside of ourselves. And when we end up in relationships with strong people, and oftentimes narcissists are very charismatic, male or female, and they do give us attention and it feels good. So when there's childhood trauma, I am void of that attention. I don't know what it feels like to have healthy mirroring. I don't know what it like to look into a mother's eyes and see love reflected back to me. So I don't have mirror neurons for self-love. I don't have it. But that doesn't mean I stop looking for it. I actually go out into the world with a huge hole in my heart looking for someone to bond with because that's natural. And when we bump into someone who is highly narcissistic and they start to mirror our empathy, suddenly I feel seen in a way, in a magical way that I've never felt before. It's like, oh my God, all my childhood trauma, it's going to be swept away in this relationship. Now, I think what ends up happening is because all of this, these patterns for this relationship and this need to feel validated and seen was created below the age of seven when I was in a hypnotic brainwave state, 
I could not leave my home. I was stuck. I couldn't fight my parents. I couldn't fawn enough to make them love me. I couldn't gain their attention. So I had no data for a boundary. And so now I just take this childhood trauma and now it's manifesting in an adult relationship. And I literally feel like a child. I feel powerless. I feel like I need this person to breathe. That's what a trauma bond is. It's a little bit different than codependency. A trauma bond is I have been psychologically manipulated, gaslighting, love bombing, intermittent validation, all of blame shifting. It's all part of the trauma bond. And so here I am, this thirsty, thirsty human being for love and affection. And I happen upon someone who's going to exploit this empathy. This is someone that knows that I'm the type of person that takes home wounded dogs. I take home wounded kittens. I fix wounded birds. I have so much empathy, right? That I'm going to have empathy for you. I'm going to excuse your poor behavior. And they can smell that someone who is, has like a predator type personality. They want someone who needs validation. They want someone who is aching to feel seen. They exploit that trauma. They exploit that abandonment trauma. And how they hook you in is by making you feel seen. They give you exactly what your inner child never had. And so now I'm invested in this relationship. Literally my brain opens up. I'm secreting all sorts of oxytocin, which is a bonding, literally a bonding chemical. Think of it as glue. And I think that this person is the answer to all my prayers. And they want me to think that. They're, now they're inside my head. They're inside my heart, telling me what I, what I need to hear, sucking me in, sucking me in. And then all of a sudden, in a short amount of time, and I guess it depends on the narcissist, they begin to devalue me. And what does my mind do? My mind says no, right? There's a cognitive bias. I need this person. This person makes me feel seen. I can't see this person in any other light. It must be me. I must have done something wrong. Maybe I should pay more attention to him or her when she comes home. Maybe I should figure out what upset them. So now I'm losing touch with myself. I'm not even sure what happened. All I know is that the bond that I have is being threatened and the attachment that I have is making me feel anxious because I've convinced myself I need it. So now I go into a little bit of withdrawal and now the narcissist has me because now that I'm feeling fractured and insecure, that's when they can become more abusive. And this is the cycle that we go through. Now, it's difficult to leave that situation when we have childhood trauma because we don't have the data for how to leave it, right? Now, another situation is, let's say I come into the relationship and I just, I'm a really nice person and I believe in treating people the way I want to be treated. And I'm not thinking that the person that I'm dating is a narcissist. I take them as face value. I know a lot of people are flawed. I don't expect this person to be perfect. I know that I'm not perfect. So I'm a reasonable person and I can end up in a relationship with a narcissist and fall in love with their mask, with their love bombing, with their fake empathy, with their future faking. I could actually set up an entire life, move across the country for someone who has convinced me that they love me, that they are this person, that they're responsible. And once I've been isolated, that's when lots of times devaluing starts to happen. And so that's what narcissists do. Now, 
we have to, once we start to understand what's happening, we have to come out of denial. And if I'm in a trauma bonded situation, then that means that I feel bonded to this person like glue. I'm terrified, like literally feel like if I leave this person, I'm going to die. This person has become my everything. And the worst thing that I can do is lose their validation. So that's what a trauma bond feels like. And so that's not so easy to get out of because we're in denial. We don't no longer trust our instincts. We no longer trust the way we feel. We've ended up defending the narcissist to our friends. We're like, you're losing yourself, girl. And the narcissist has convinced us that if our friends talk to us that way, we need to cut them out of our lives because they're jealous of our relationship or they're trying to get in between us. And so now I push my friends away and I end up defending the narcissist. So I'm just getting lower and lower and lower. The narcissist loses their job. I say, that's okay. I'll pay all the bills. So now the narcissist is completely dependent upon me. Now that's hard to leave too. So as you can see, as you relationship, the worst it gets, but the good news is with the right information, with the right knowledge, you absolutely can heal the trauma bond as well as codependency, set a boundary, live in reality, ask yourself, do I even like this person? Am I happy? Does this person bring out the best in me? Where did my friends go? You can start to see things logically and reasonably, but it's a process. It's not easy. Thank you so much for such a rich and um, full of details. Um, that circle of abuse, right? How it happens. And I find, I find it really like interesting how it happens that including myself and all the people who I interview that we um, think that others are jealous about us or they don't understand us. So we put them on the side like family and friends. Which yeah, part? We, we do it. Well, sometimes that's because because of the narcissist. The narcissist has downloaded these ideas that cause us to think that maybe our friends are jealous of us. And the narcissist comes off like they are the center of our world. And like no one understands our love. Our love is so special. People just don't understand it. So sometimes that happens. And so you don't want to appear disloyal because the narcissist also, at another stage of the relationship, has learned and taught you to believe that if you go against what they believe, you're being disloyal. Mm -hmm. And so they're constantly brainwashing you barriers to the way that you can think. So if your friends say anything negative about me and you don't say anything, you're being disloyal and that's going to make me feel like you don't love me and then I'm going to pull away from you. And then there starts the withdrawal process from the narcissist. So we don't even realize we're being like a puppy to seek the treat. And the treat is the narcissist's praise, the narcissist's validation, the narcissist's acceptance. And the fear is the withdrawal or an outrage or thinking poorly of us. 
right? So the narcissist will condition us to be afraid of their perception of us. So we scurry around trying to prove to the narcissist we are not who they think we are. And that's super important. We've lost ourselves when we're trying to change ourselves to be what the narcissist wants us to be and to not be what the narcissist is accusing of us of. of. Okay. We make sure that we're home before they're home. We make sure that we dote all over them because we're trying to convince them we are not this faulty perception that they hold of us. And we're losing ourselves. We don't even realize it, but that's what the narcissist wants. Thank you so much, Lisa, for opening your heart. You as a survival, not only experts, because we all know you from all the books you wrote, which I can count like 11 or 12, but you are, you, you first were a survival. You've been through a few narcissistic relationships and now you're in a healthy relationship. But when I look at your life and what you are teaching and walking your talk and educating on that impact that if you had some trauma in your childhood then probably you would have some unhealthy patterns like empathy for example it can be literally a superpower when we are with a healthy partner but it can also be something as a pain if we are with somebody who take advantage of that, like you mentioned, that person can literally smell it. They make you feel seen, they make you feel important. Mm, they put you on pedestal. And when you get to be more invested in that relationship, that's when the devaluation happens and we start to diminish our true authentic self, which is uh, coming from our, our intuition stop trusting ourselves and we just start to justify their behaviors maybe i'm too sensitive maybe i don't have a good sense of humor maybe i could be nicer or kinder and it all comes to self-doubt and it all comes to that belief i'm not good enough and i love what you mentioned that the solution for any relationship is to keep re-evaluating ourselves our relationships, our relationships with ourselves, but also with others. And how? You said this beautifully. Like, do I even like this person? Is this person makes me feel good? Instead of um, what I used to do, actually, personally, that I stopped questioning, evaluating those relationships. And instead of that, I would just settle for less and and it all comes to feeling not worthy and somewhere I feel that I'm going really deep in this podcast on red flags on purpose on purpose because I believe that we lose the connection with our true authentic self as a child children and we get to repeat that in our adulthood and that's why the moment when we leave those unhealthy relationships it feels so much intense there's something called anxiety separation we 
food. Basically, our body is reacting to that experience as if we were getting off a drug, like a heroin. So we have all those symptoms of side effects, like as if we're just stopping taking some drug and our body craves that connection, that person who used to feel us in a certain way. And I do remember in my relationship, my first relationship in 2018 in Barcelona, um, in December 2018, when I was in that apartment after a week being absent so I could regain my strength, I came back just to take my clothes. And I was in that apartment maybe for 30 minutes but I cannot explain how out of control I felt after 10 minutes of that interaction when um, the, that person's eyes totally changed from being, like you would say, normal to being really crazy and dark inside. And I felt, oh my God, I will probably never leave this apartment. And it scared me, that feeling I was less and less of control of just taking basically my legs out of this apartment. It felt I was walking away from, not only from that relationship, it felt like I was walking toward taking care of myself, which even more felt unfamiliar. And, and that's why I feel that that moment, what helped me to actually to leave that apartment was just saying, telling myself that I have to leave now. And I left with half of my things just because of I felt that I will never leave if I stay there a second later. And also somewhere I felt threatened because of that person put a kind of metallic pipe on the table uh, looking at me and that's what was somewhere probably threatening and making me feel even more unsafe and why I'm sharing this is because of when we decide to leave that's when it's the most dangerous moment and when our life is literally on the spot and that's the highest rate of murders when survivors decide to leave. And that's why I think it's so important that we have friends, support group, and there's a hotline. And we're going to put the number also in the description for the hotline. And also if you are in a situation which is unhealthy, You are welcome to contact us on exposenetwork.com and thank you so much for listening and for your time and I hope it was so inspir inspir inspirational and full of great insights episode for you as it was for me. Thank you Lisa and Daniel for coming and thank you for sharing your knowledge and wisdom.